Thank you very much for the honour of inviting me to give this keynote and also for that wonderful introduction. Thank you very much indeed. What I want to do today um, is uh, take you through very briefly uh, some of the work I've been doing on studying how people are engaged in large-scale processes of transformation in universities over the last 30 years. Um, but one of the things that I'm focused on, now where's the key to go down there, um, is how to start thinking about that critical work and move it into more um, action, into thinking, okay, how do we want to try and reshape the universities? I've, I've been critical and uh, cross about changes happening to universities, first in the UK and then in Denmark. Um, but let's move into a more positive frame and think, well, how do we use some, some ideas about the university to think how we want to reshape it and what we want to do? In, um, in doing that, I've gone back to some very old stuff that I did on the anthropology of organizations in the 1980s, actually. And looking at the work of uh, Gareth Morgan on images of the organization, and he points out very nicely that there are root metaphors and different root metaphors of the organization shape the way that the organization is run and managed. Ways of seeing and frameworks of organizing. So I've been working on, on imagine, imaginizing different ways of, of, of organizing the university and also looking at some of the imaginators which I've published about separately. So how can we imagine an organization differently and act in ways that maybe haven't been thought possible before? That took me to then thinking, okay, then perhaps the root metaphor of the university at the moment is the university as an economy. So I've been, I want to explore that idea of the university as economy, as a competitive unit, with certain things counting and other things not counting, and what isn't counted is externalized. And then that took me to thinking, okay, well, if we don't want to think about the university as an economy, what else can we think of it as? And that took me to thinking, using new research from biology and anthropology, um, to think of the university as an ecology. And this is new research on the ecology with lovely phrases, words like symbiosis and holobionts, which I'll hope to introduce you to. And the idea of multi-species livability in the midst of disturbance, and that seems to me to capture maybe what an alternative idea of the, of the university could be, and to act uh, with responsibility and care. So I want to introduce you to some rather strange ideas from biology and uh, anthropology that might just give us another way of thinking about the space that we work in. And then thinking, okay, how can we actually act in that space? So that's my agenda for today. Um, that's a credentials slide to show you the work that I'm drawing on. Let me move straight on to, just briefly, one of the problems of trying to create a synthesis about what's been happening to universities around the world is that the reform reforms have been rampant. There have been reforms of universities all over the place. 
but they're all labeled slightly differently. And they quite often focus on a different bit of the university complex. So I, I've drawn on Morton's work um, and his idea of a hyper object where the pro processes are, and this is again coming from ecology, processes are so massively widespread around the globe and they take different detailed forms. So it's hard to grasp how they have similar effects, but somehow you can see some similar effects. So I just want to give you a flavor of this kind of idea by introducing three different kinds of reforms that have been going on, and then maybe pull out some of the uh, similar effects. So the first example is to look at uh, Australia and New Zealand, where reforms have often been in terms of creating entrepreneurial universities. And here my greatest uh, familiarity is with Auckland University in New Zealand, where enterprise, which is another word for income generation, pervades every aspect of the university. So the, the research priorities, um, staff appointments, if, a, if a, staff a new staff member is to be appointed, what, are the, what research are they doing and how can it be financialized? What kind of income will it bring to the university? That's one of the priorities in appointing staff. Conditions of employment have been changed to focus on that and a new, what's called dispersed uh, leadership model has been introduced, so everybody is responsible for leading themselves and leading the university in that direction. And accompanying that is an unbundling of the university into separate income-generating activities. So that's one complex of ideas being uh, used to reform universities around the notion of the entrepreneurial university. In Denmark, where I've been working for the last 14 years, there's been quite a different way of thinking about the reforms. There was a big law passed in 2003, which explicitly stated that the role of universities is to drive Denmark's competitiveness in a global knowledge economy. And, and I quote, sustain its position as one of the richest countries in the world. It's a big ask for universities. The way they went about this was to increase state funding to the public sector, whereas more often these reforms have been accompanied by reducing state funding. They increased state funding um, so that universities could produce the raw materials that are needed for the knowledge economy. And of course, you know, they are knowledge that can be turned into innovations and students that can become knowledge workers. And uh, the law also gave the universities a legal obligation to exchange knowledge with, quote, surrounding society, which doesn't quite elide to industry, but nearly. But at the same time, to protect its own research freedom and ethics. A third example, of course, would be England, which I would put under the heading of marketization. And here I've put in a series of bullet points as a version of the history of what's been going on largely motivated by the vice chancellors themselves in commissioning in 1985. I don't know whether, quite a few of you must have been alive then, I think. Um, the, the Jarrett report, I was certainly. Um, and that turned the vice chancellor into, uh, said vice chancellors should think of themselves as CEO, CEOs of a company. They should streamline the reporting lines to the top 
and turn every unit in the university into a, a, resource, a cost center and treat the staff as units of resource so that decisions in the university would be made on an economic rationale. That, I think, was a really key moment in the transformation of, of uh, British uh, universities. Another key moment I would pick on would be not so much 1997 when the first uh, fees were brought in, but the 2004 Higher Education Act, which introduced a market for fees. Okay, it was a capped market because of the revolt of the Labour Party against their own uh, government, but it produced the um, market that the cap could be lifted off. And that, I think, is what you're facing happening at the moment. Another key moment is the vice chancellors commissioned a report from the legal form, firm Eversheds, which was to explore how public universities could be privatized. In other words, how they could privatize their own universities, or else how uh, buy-ins buy could, could happen. And this report announced in 2009 that Legally, there is no problem about privatizing public universities in England if there is the political will. And then I think you saw the beginning of that in 2010 when the government stopped funding teaching uh, and uh, funded uh, education through student loans and tripled the fees. Then the, the level playing field, which that was meant to introduce a level playing field to let for-profit uh, for providers uh, compete on a level playing field with, with public providers. And then you've got the REF, TEF, KEF, and I don't know how many more Fs you're going to have. Um, and I think this very important split between the Office for Students and the UK Research and Innovation uh, Office, which are separating out the funding, part of the unbundling of the universities into two separate funding streams, Whereas, of course, the whole essence of a university is the mixture between those. So the pictures on this slide are really showing the key documents, I think, where you can trace this language of the marketization of the universities coming through, in particular around the notion of, of students as consumers. So what are the kind of shared features? I, I mean, I can go on as you could look at the... Um, the World Bank's uh, uh, excellent the World Class Universities Initiative and the way that's worked in places like Vietnam and other places. And there's a whole series of different reforms. But just to use those three and then to, to pull, out, pull out some of the shared features of the reforms. And I think they turn the university into a new kind of subject. So universities are no longer ring-fenced from political and economic interests with the idea that they needed that to uh, work for the public benefit. They've always, or at least since the Second World War, been part of a military-industrial complex, especially in the US. And that's often been certain departments in a university very tightly connected to that military-industrial uh, complex. But I think what happened with the 1987 white paper in the UK when the government suddenly accused universities of having failed the economy, I didn't know my purpose was to support the economy. And that was a real shock to me. And it really shifted the whole language about the universities. 
It's not just a few departments that relate to the military-industrial complex. It's the whole university that should be supporting the whole of the economy. Then the shift around 2000 is when you get uh, the OECD and others generating the idea of the inevitable future being based on a global knowledge economy. The idea, and you saw that in my example from Denmark, the role of the university is to drive the economy. And I think the last move, and one that's really happening now, is that the universities are an economy. So that's, I think, some of the shared features of the reform that come out, is this use of the word economy as a root metaphor for the university. Let me just um, try and put that in a picture form. Um, what I've tried to do here is look at the university as a new subject. I wonder how this works. Oh, yeah. Um, we used to have a sector called universities, and they would have some other things like university colleges and vice chancellors and the academic union, the students' union. If I was clever, I'd turn that into a very jagged dotted line now and put another dotted line around the university itself. And I think around that, then, we've got the corporate funders, the ones that want to do uh, research in collaboration with universities, but also the ones that are supplying some of the IT systems now, which our universities are run on. I don't know, do you, we have Blackboard. Do you have Blackboard? And then there's all sorts of... Um, IT systems for financial management and goodness knows what. They're all part of wanting to have relations with the universities. The publishing firms are all busy reworking their business models. Audit companies, the Danish law insisted that audit companies, uh, that universities employ one of the big four to audit their books now. So they've become part of the university or around the university. The ranking organizations, which I think I don't have to explain very much. Now even the Ministry of Research in Denmark, which used to be part of this uh, sector, is now outside of it and is making demands on the university. There's the whole, what I call the international trade in, in students, with all the uh, pathway providers. In the UK in particular, the credit rating companies the reason why Cambridge has been able to uh, develop its enormous expansion of the city of Cambridge by raising a 300 million loan on, on the stock exchange is because it had AAA rating from the, the commercial credit rating companies. Um, there are the consultancies, McKinsey's um, is, is a big one, that are there telling vice chancellors and others how to reorganize their universities in order to meet the demands of, of the sector. There are pressure groups um, all giving advice, and there are the international agencies who are also developing new policy platforms and ideas. And then tucked in the bottom are the little community groups that also want to engage with universities still. So what I've tried to do here is try and locate the university in an enormous field where all of these um, interests can legitimately now make demands on the university. 
And it's the responsibility of the university itself to negotiate how it wants to relate to all of these, uh, of these interests whilst protecting its own um, research freedom or academic freedom and its own research ethics. So that's to say there's a new context for the university. Um, the external stakeholders that I've just um, described with an enormous range of different relationships between them and the university. Market relations, contract relations, exchange, collaboration, competition, you could keep going. And one of the um, fellows on our recent unique um, uh, ITN project did a brilliant piece of work on looking at the market-making dynamic of universities. And that's her diagram up on, on, the, on the right there. Um, where she looks at the way in which goods or, or activities in the universities are turned into commodifiable goods and agents are, are identified that can actually marketize them and encounters set up between the agencies and the goods with price setting uh, negotiations and then designing the market and maintaining the market. And she's shown... A, the very, very many different activities that are going on in the university where this kind of market-making is going on at the moment. One of the figures she offers is that agencies offering educational support in the UK have increased by 380% between 2008 and 2013. But the market-making is one of the relationships. It's not the only relationship. But overall... The boundaries between, if I go back to my diagram, forget the dark red line in the middle. Where is the boundary now around the university and between the university and all of those interests? From one point of view, um, the boundary of Britain is in the registrar's office because the registrar is deciding the visas for incoming students. In another point of view, um, the IT providers who are quite often working actually in the administration are part of the university itself. On the other hand, if you're a, a, a researcher who works in the lab of a private company, where's the boundary? The boundaries are all over the place. It's a very, very fuzzy world that the universities are in. And one of the questions then is, how do, how do universities manage the tensions or even conflicts between market and other values and the academic values of the freedom to be critic and conscious of your own society? So that's, that's the new context that I think the universities are in. And it's an extremely complicated context and very hard to get your head around. But all these, the second aspect of these reforms is that they have thought about what kind of organization is needed to act in this context. And I think most of the reforms have debated three different kinds. One would be a networking organization. Another one would be one governed by a board, which is especially um, the, the uh, US model. And the third would be the 
strategically led organization, the kind of green um, triangle there. And most of them, I think, have gone towards that strategically led organization in Europe. The notion of being autonomous and the new idea of autonomy, which means that the university has the right and responsibility to act on its own in fulfilling the policy expectations of the government. With a leader who speaks for and as the university and a coherent hierarchy of managers who summon up the input outputs and deliver them either to the leader or to the company they have a contract with or to the government they have a contract with. And there's the idea that it's a clearly bounded institution. There's a dilemma here, this kind of autopoetic or egocentric organization, an idea of a self-producing, autonomous, bounded university, centrally controlled, strategically led, hierarchical, predictable. That's one of the images that's going along. And yet, the university is meant to be flat and agile and networked with industry. So that the idea of the organization, how the organization should be, is itself um, a, it's a dilemma and a question. Let me shift to a slightly more theoretical frame for thinking about, okay, if the university is in this field, which a lot of the relations are thought of as an economy, and it's thought of as, as a kind of hierarchical organization right back from the Jarrett report in Britain, where, where the point of the leaders is to, to manage the university in that way. Then I looked at Polanyi uh, and his work on the meaning of oikos. And he has two meanings of oikos, but let me take one of them, which is the formal economy. And what he does in the Great Transformation is look over the history of England in particular from the 18th century and show how prior to that, economic activities, and he had a strong strand of anthropology in his work, so we know this from many studies around the world, economic aspects of activities are tied up with social aspects of activities and often religious and always political. So it, you can't disembed the economic from the matrix of different um, ideas that surround any particular activity in a society. But what he shows in the 18th century uh, is that the economic becomes disembedded from the matrix of social life and turned into an autonomous sphere that's thought of as operating according to its own logic. Good services, labor, and land are ripped out of context and transacted through price setting in markets um, with an assumption of scarcity. And then individuals, and individuals, and it's interesting, there's an elision here. Individuals sometimes means people are individuals. Sometimes it means organizations are individuals, are treated as autonomous units who are competing to maximize their gains. And then he shows that that abstracted economic logic is used then to re, is, is reimposed on other spheres of life 
so that the economy reshapes the context in its own image. What I would argue is that in this long historical process in Britain, that notion of the economy that was disembedded has now come and embedded itself in the university and changing, is changing the university in its own image. Anthropologists are a bit wacky. They, um, they come in stage left with strange ideas to think with. And uh, I've been working on these ideas with uh, a colleague, David Greenwood, who in the 1970s, 60s and 70s, uh, worked in the Basque country on uh, farming. And what he showed is that the Basque farmers had a mixed economy and their main focus was on subsistence. And that meant social relationships with each other and an economy for their own production that focused on maintaining subsistence levels of income year after year. But a small aspect of what they did was growing grain that they sold to the local garrison town in order to gain uh, cash to buy some of the things they couldn't produce. And using Polanyi's terms, they treated that as a port of trade. That, that commodification of wheat went to the garrison, but it wasn't allowed to invade the rest of their economy, which wasn't commodified. It remained, a, it remained as a subsistence. But a younger generation took over who wanted a, a, a consumer-based lifestyle. They consumerized all their products, sold them, lost all the social relations that their old subsistence economy was based on. And then when the prices started fluctuating and they couldn't any, any longer keep a, a viable um, uh, thing going, they, they found that people had dispersed the ways in which they'd run the subsistence, subsistence agriculture had gone and the economy very much uh, collapsed. So that's a kind of a warning from, let's think about the university in similar terms. Let's think about the university in terms of circuits of exchange, which is what the Basque farmers did. And here, there's a, we've used a quite um, standard matrix of excludable and non-excludable, rivalrous and non-rivalrous um, uh, matrix. And you can see that you could think of what the university does in terms of four types of circuits of exchange. So some of the work is in terms of private goods, which you could think of in terms of patents. There's lots of other examples. The form of exchange there, using Polanyi's terms, would be market. And quite often, there's a direct, specific, contractual exchange, which in that case would generate low trust and not be sustainable. If you move over to the right-hand quadrant, whoops, um, a non-excludable but rivalrous would be common goods. And here you could think of in open innovation systems. And there you've got, uh, in Polanyi's terms, reciprocity or redistribution and a relationship of high or intermediate trust. On the left-hand bottom corner, we've got non-rivalrous and excludable, which is like club goods, which is like your university subscribing to a journal. Um, and there the form of exchange is more like redistribution. And in the bottom right-hand corner, 
you've got uh, non-excludable and non-rivalrous public goods like this talk or a public talk um, where the form of exchange is reciprocity and there's a high trust and maybe a long-lasting relationship. That's a fairly standard way of, of thinking about circuits of exchange. This is a diagram that when Rebecca Bowden and David Greenwood and I were working on this, Rebecca came up with, which puts those four quadrants into four blobs, which you could see in terms of the Basque farmers and their port of trade, the excludable and rivalrous for-profit activities are the small uh, brown uh, egg, if you like. Um, and the money that they get from that is then supporting the other uh, non-excludable goods. But the way we thought about it was that what's been happening is that the private goods has turned into like the cuckoo's egg in the nest. Um, it's grown enormously, but also the arrows have changed direction. So now the rest of the university's activities are feeding in to the private goods. If I now move to the um, thinking about how, how to think about this in terms of the effects of formal economy, that's taken me to reading the new biology and the anthropology that's been working on, on the Anthropocene. This is the uh, new geological era that was announced a year or so ago, which uh, says that humans are as great a force on the planet as glaciers were in the previous geological era, the Holocene. But the anthropology work that's been done on this is to say, well, it's not just humans affecting nature. There's a whole political economy involved in how the Anthropocene has come about, where post-war technologies that have been used for growth in its own sake have been confused with well-being. And that then took me to thinking, okay, but if there's a political economy, then there are institutions involved in generating that political economy. Now, I'm not going to argue that the universities are the most important of those institutions, but they're certainly one of the institutions that have been helping to produce the knowledge for growth that's underpinned the Anthropocene. And an example of this would be um, the DDT um, after the Second World War. One of the uh, poisons that was developed during the war um, was turned into uh, insecticide. The university research on that was very much in terms of the dosage to use and how to handle it, um, but not challenging the actual um, growth machine that it was part of. The, the, the big move against something like DDT came from Rachel Carson, who was a scientific writer outside of the university, and her book, Silent Spring, and the environmental movement that came out of it. So this is just one example to show how some aspects of the university have been embedded in that what's called the, the self-consuming growth of the, of the Anthropocene. One of the aspects of uh, the Anthropocene work is to show how certain things that create growth are counted and other things are wastelanded. So the focus on growth zones 
means that you hide away the damaged parts of the earth and their toxic effects of what you're doing. But what they're arguing is that the, the Anthropocene coming to notice is actually because the segregation has broken down and now more and more people are living in the sacrificial zones of wastelanding haunted by the growth's toxic effects. If we take that as an image, does that give us an alternative way of thinking about the university as an embedded economy or an interactive ecology? And that takes me back to Polanyi's second meaning of oikos, re-embedding the economy, or the word is also the root of ecology. The idea that the, the, the economy is a constituted process, not a separate sphere, tied into many social relations and institutions. And here I've been talking with Anna Singh and her ideas of interactive ecology. The idea that uh, the Anthropocene has been based, the growth uh, economy of the Anthropocene has ba been based on an idea of separation, but we're living in the ruins and the wastelands. This is something I've been longing to say since 1984. Do you remember there is no such thing as society? There is no such thing as the individual. The work that the ecologists have been doing is shown that individuals don't exist. Humans are more bacteria than they are human genes. Cows can't eat grass. Cows can chew grass. They have a whole sequence of bacteria in their stomachs that actually makes them, enable them to process. Termites can't eat, build, well, they can chew buildings, but again, they've got a whole nesting of different um, critters inside them that enable them to digest the wood and do things with it. There is no such thing as the individual. And in, and all these different critters are engaging with each other in a form of co-production or what they call symbiosis. So this idea that there are no such things as individuals is called holobionts, which I think is a really strange word. And the idea that nothing can exist on its own, everything is in a process of co-creation is, is symbiosis. So they have this whole vocabulary of thinking the world differently. Um, and then they talk about livable landscapes as emerging from these complex relationships. Now, this isn't all lovey-dovey. Um, those relationships can be predation. They can be violent competition, or they can be uh, mutual. And it's quite unpredictable as to which is going to be what. Um, but the idea is that Organisms are continuously in changing relations with each other. There's nothing stable, fixed, and a green uh, uh, triangle. They're, they're continually disturbing and remaking the environment around them by changing all the relationships with everything else around them. So as Anna Singh says, mutualism is a miracle, rarely planned, and symbiosis occurs when unexpected historical conjunctions fall into new coordinations. But that is a, a totally different way of thinking about the world. How can we 
use that to think about universities. So if the ruins of the if the university is in the ruins of the economy, a wasteland, and the university has been made to drive a system that it's responsible for critiquing, and its purpose has been narrowed down through audit and performance management to say what counts, and that's been simplified and abstracted from everything else, which is turned into externalities. That makes academic, academia into a fictitious commodity made up of units that are own, can only be transacted in a market by destroying their social and ecological fa fabric. So it ruins the complexity of entanglements and interdependencies that would be needed for a, what the ecologists call a livable landscape. So what would be the principles for action of a livable, in a livable landscape? First of all, rethinking the purpose of the university. How about care and responsibility towards humanity and the planet? Secondly, thinking of the university as a holobiont. It's, um, it's symbiosis all the way down, if you like. And one of the ways of doing that is to rethink the notion of, of public along the way that Machelin and Simons are doing in Utrecht. So as to create publics around research programs and around research so that we move away from this notion of impact that you do something on your own and then you work out how you might make a story about its impact. You actually build in conversations with a wider public right from the very beginning and, and rethink the notion of common knowledge along the way. And use the idea of, of symposis, thinking of the university as continuous interactions looking for mutualisms, but it's a space of dissension, contest, hopefully not predation. Um, and the only way it can work then is through a generous willingness to disagree. And then a rethinking of audit to move towards substantive valuations based on notions of responsibility and thinking with care. And as Donna Haraway says, the only way to do this is to lead an examined life with troubling questions. I want to end with just some practical um, indications of some of the work that's going on to try and rethink the university in that way with some tactics for acting on those principles. And there's no notion that this is, again, going to be lovey-dovey. It's tough. There's a lot of vested interest that will not be wanting to move in that direction. There's also a question in the ecology side. They say that mutualisms happen by accident. But can we actually design universities to try and... And, and some of those mutualisms will happen by accident. But can we move towards also thinking about how to create a livable landscape by design? And I think that raises four questions. One... Who owns the university? And especially with the move to privatization in Britain, that's a really important question. And um, what legal instruments can be constructed that make the assets of a university inalienable so that it, you can create a new sense of public and common around them? And here, I've been working on notions of the John Lewis partnership and their trust and how they work. The cooperative uh, society has just published its new education uh, manifesto 
which includes trying to set up a, a cooperative university. Um, how do we design the internal organization of the university? And here David Greenwood has produced this new book, Creating a New Public University, around the notion of, of matrix organization for the, for the university, so that managers, academics, support workers, students, see how they're implicated in each other's welfare through the patterns of organizational integration. Can we use holobiont and symbiosis to expose the relations that have been hidden by the word competition and growth, um, performance and externality. Bring back the, so the complicated social relations that are involved in those and use that to redesign a notion of public community trust. All these words need to be rethought and reshaped in organizational design. And then coming back to the diagram with the cuckoo's egg, trying to identify the circuits of exchange and maintain a better balance between them, which isn't to say there shouldn't be any marketization of the university. It's to say the relationship between that and the rest of the university needs to be thought. And my final point is that I think the only way that we can achieve this, working from the notion that this isn't a top-down process, this is ways in which we are going to have to work within our own institutions to create change. The idea that I've often talked about of thinking of ourselves and trying to uh, teach our students to think of themselves as critically reflexive practitioners, that we're reflecting on the impact that we're having on our own institutions and in the ecology that they're part of, and thinking how are, to put it simply, our actions reproducing the Anthropocene. And how are our actions creating an alternative, a more livable landscape? Thank you.